Well, good morning, everybody. The, uh, the storm has calmed. And now, if, especially if you're a parent, why don't you just take a quick moment, just close your eyes, breathe in, and exhale. Your kids are gone, <laughs> some of your kids. Um, and now we just really want to focus on turning our attention to the Lord. I know that life can just get so busy and chaotic sometimes, you know, especially when you have children. And, and many of you whose children have grown, you can remember those days where you're just constantly thinking about, you know, how to take care of your children, think about how they're acting and things like that. But it's so important that we come together and that we take intentional time to focus on God's Word and just to allow us as adults and as parents and as uh, just human beings, as children of God, just allow God to really speak to us and minister to us. You know, so I, I hope that you truly find a time of sanctuary here and that your souls are built up by the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to break from 2 Corinthians. We are going through the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, we do have communion here at the end of the sermon, which we will be taking together. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to walk through the scripture, and I wanted to talk mainly about who Jesus is and what Jesus teaches when it comes to socioeconomics. And the reason we're in this topic is because Paul has been talking about this specific talk topic when it comes to how we are to uh, demonstrate acts of grace towards one another. In other words, how are we to be charitable? How are we to be a community? And how are we to work together as the body of Christ to share the gospel and to fulfill the Great Commission to the ends of the earth? And so part of that is, and the biggest part of this is, we need to get Jesus right. That is one of the most important things that we can do and our responsibility as the church is to make sure that we get the person of Jesus right. Well, how do we do that? Do we do that by thinking about, well, here's my idea of what a nice person is, so therefore I'm going to project my idea of what a nice person is onto Jesus? Or do we think about what's popular in the world today or what's virtuous in the world today and we apply those standards to Jesus? Do we deconstruct the Bible, deconstruct Jesus, and then reconstruct him as a God of our own making? Is, is that how we are to handle the person of Jesus? Unfortunately, many people today believe that they can use Jesus as a political football to promote their idea of the way things should be. And this morning, I have no intention of using Jesus in such a way as if he could ever be used in such a way. Because Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is our God. He is the one we serve. He is the one we worship. He is the one we pledge our allegiance to. Is Christ. He's our Savior. And no matter what country you're from, no matter what creed you have, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then he is Lord above all. And so therefore... If you are interested in being a Christ follower, then you should follow who the true Christ is. There's a lot of people who make a lot of claims about Jesus. They'll say all sorts of crazy things about him. 
In fact, just a couple months ago, I saw somebody on TV say that I believe that Jesus would have been the grand marshal of a pride parade. He would have been right out front, and he would have been marching in a pride parade. I've heard people make all sorts of outrageous claims that, that, well, Jesus was a socialist. Or even counter to that, that no, Jesus was actually a capitalist, and you have all these people fighting over Jesus as if he were a political football, somehow to gain political points for your advantage. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus was neither a socialist or a capitalist, but his system is something far greater than any of these. And so my hope this morning is that we're going to refute these ideas of who Jesus is by simply letting him tell us in his own words who he is and what he believes. Because ultimately the Bible is our authority and the foundation of truth for all that Jesus is and all that he taught. And so don't allow people to tell you who Jesus is. Allow the word of God to tell you who Christ is. And so let's say a word of prayer, and we'll let Jesus speak for himself. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this day and this precious time we get to come together. Thank you for this set-apart time, this, this Sabbath time that we get to share, resting in you with peace that passes understanding. Despite the turmoil and the stress across this world, Lord, we can come to you in this time of sanctuary, be built up by one another's common faith, be built up by your words from Scripture, built up in beautiful song, songs of praise to your name and what you've done for us, built up by sharing a meal together and a feast But Father, I thank you so much, more than anything, for your blood that was shed for my sins. God, that I was once a lost sinner, only caring about myself, only caring about feeding my flesh and my passions and my desires. But God, you came into my life. You changed me. You made me new. And you build me up and sanctify me day by day. And thank you, God, that I stand here as one who shares your word. And I pray, God, that you would continue to build up this church. Thank you for saving all of us. Lord, thank you for changing us. And if there's somebody somebody here who has not yet made the decision to follow you, God, I, I pray that today that your words, that your Holy Spirit will tip them over into your backyard and where they'll play forevermore. I thank you, God, for the many graces that you show us. Help us, Lord, to give back, to give back to our family, to our fellow believers, and to the world, a a portion of that grace which you have shown us. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So do you think that Jesus cares if we get him right? You know, do you think he cares if, if we have a right heart and attitude or understanding of who he is and what he taught? Well, in order to answer that question, if we look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, it tells us when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is, referring to himself? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, 
and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Simon Peter, despite the fact that there were people saying, well, Jesus is, is a prophet, or Jesus is Elijah, or, or whoever he might be, Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, you are the Messiah. You are the one who is begotten from God. You are God himself. And on this, Jesus said, you are correct. And not only did, did he say you are correct, but he said, because you believe rightly about me, then upon this rock, upon the rock of, of this belief, then you shall be blessed in your ministry work and hell will not prevail against your work. So in order to have the promise of a successful church or ministry, this is only given to believers who have an accurate understanding of who Jesus actually is. And so when we think about some of the distinctions between, for example, uh, Christians and Mormons, Mormons have a completely different idea of who Jesus is. And it's subtle, but it's huge. It's a big deal. And so therefore, you cannot say you are a true church of Christ if you have an alternate belief about who, the, who Jesus is. And of course, the authority of what we believe about Jesus comes from Scripture. And so therefore, any other representation of who Jesus is outside of Scripture is false. And so therefore, it's important as a church, as believers, that we have a right understanding of Jesus. And so therefore, church, you need to turn to your scriptures. If, if you are confused about who Jesus is or what he might have done in this kind of situation or his attitude towards this person or this topic or whatever it might be, then read the scriptures. Because therein you will find the true heart and mind of Christ. And the Holy Spirit will guide you along in, in understanding to know who the true Christ is. Also, when you read scripture that talks to you about praying in Jesus' name, what does that mean? Uh, even when we sing songs that talk about the name of Jesus, blessed be the name of Jesus, hallowed be thy name. Are we just talking about how special the name of Jesus is? Because it is special. I mean, how many people do you know, besides people south of the border, who have the name Jesus? Have you ever met somebody who said, hi, my name is Jesus? I did once. They were in a park. I'm pretty sure they were on drugs, but they said they were Jesus. But you're not going to meet many people with that name. It is a special name. I mean, at that name, my heart does something when I hear the name of Jesus. The enemy, the demons have to flee at the name of Jesus. I've heard many testimonies about how true evil presented itself to someone 
and how they used the name of Jesus. They cried out to the name of Jesus, and at that name, that evil fled from them. So the name of Jesus in and of itself is indeed powerful. However, the name of Jesus goes beyond just the title. The name of Jesus is what encompasses the entire person of Christ. His behaviors, his attitude, his heart. It's the heart of Christ. The name of Christ is the heart of Christ. In John 14, 12, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So this is not just an invitation to use Jesus' name as a fancy tagline to your prayer. As if it somehow had magical qualities. If you just say the magic code, in Jesus' name, it shall be done. What this is referring to is if you pray according to the heart and the mind and the will and the person of Jesus and the character of Jesus, then he will accomplish those prayers. Ask anything according to my character and I will do it. Why is that? Because if you're living and doing things according to the character of Christ, then you are doing things according to his will. And of course, he wants his will to be accomplished. And so it's our role and responsibility not to be asking God just for the the things that we selfishly want that are going to help us in the moment, but rather to ask for the big things that God wants. And so it's our hearts that need to change. And that's part of the practice of prayer is when we come to the Lord and we seek his face and we exalt him for his goodness and greatness, we think upon all the things he has done for us, we give him thanksgiving, then he tenders and he changes our hearts to align with his. So prayer is not about getting the things you want, it's about proclaiming the things that he wants. And so in that way, it's important that we get Christ right. We need to know what he wants. What does Jesus want? want. Also, it's just a matter matter of just general principle that it's important to get history right. I mean, if you're you're talking about any historical figure or any family member, current, living, or dead, it's important that you get their character right. You know, as a pastor, I have a privilege of of, um, doing funerals and doing weddings and things like that. And for me, it's, it's so important that during a funeral, we accurately, accurately represent who that person was. Now, of course, you don't go into gross detail about all their mistakes. Funerals aren't really the place to do that. But you also don't want to lie. If somebody just really was a, a crotchety old person who just gave everybody a hard time, you don't want to misrepresent them and say, oh, they were such an angel. It was such a great, everybody loved him. He did so many nice things. And all the people who actually knew him are sitting there like, nope. (laughs) We loved him, but man, he was not nice to people. (laughs) That's a lie. It should be the same way when we approach Jesus or, or any other person who lived in history. We should care about who they actually were and seek to represent them accurately. 
And so when I hear things like Jesus was a socialist, people just throwing that out flippantly, that makes me burn with righteous anger because you are misrepresenting the Lord of my life. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. And then when you hear people on the other side say, no, Jesus was not a socialist. He was a capitalist. He would have been an American. I'm sure of it. I say, no, I burn with righteous anger. That is not true either. He was neither of these. He was far greater than any of these world systems. He is beyond these things. We do our best as human beings to try to come up with some kind of social economic system that, that works for us in our time with our, with our technology and with the population. And we, we do our best, but our best sucks. Generation after generation after generation, these systems, they work for a while, and then greed and, and power and all these things come into it, and ultimately it all collapses. We've seen this from the time of, of the first governments in history. We read about it in the Bible. This was not God's intention for Israel. Israel wanted to be their king, but they wanted kings like the rest of the king, uh, kingdoms were doing. Give us a king like they have. Very well. You can have your kings in your kingdoms and everything that goes along with it. The authoritarianism, the, the suffering, the slavery, injustices, all these kind of things. And so I'm not here today to advocate for any human system of government. Today I'm here to advocate for Christ and the person of Christ. And it's important that we get it right. And so to begin with, I wanted to look just at a couple places where Jesus talks about the economy or social organization. Just a couple places. He talks about these things a lot, but these are the big ones I want to focus on. First of all, uh, Jesus talks about in uh, Luke 12, 13 through 21. He says, someone, the scripture says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So with that parable in mind, I wanted to read to you a definition of socialism, because again, the claim is Jesus was a socialist. So let's read the definition of socialism with that in mind. So here, here's the best definition I could find, which I think encompasses generally what people mean when they talk about socialism. Socialism is a political an economic theory of social organization which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community and not individuals. So in other words, whoever the community leaders are 
whether it's national leaders or small community leaders, they ultimately, they are the owners of all that you produce or all that you make or all that you have. So fundamentally, they own it and they can take it and uh, redistribute, redistribute it. I'm having trouble with that word this week. Uh, as they please, as they see fit. So thinking back on the parable of the rich fool, how is this parable of Christ compatible with socialism? First of all, does Jesus anywhere in this parable concern himself with equally distributing the financial inheritance of man? No. So you have this man who approaches Jesus, teacher, Tell my brother, force my brother, to divide the inheritance with me. But what does Jesus say to him? Man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? So Jesus first explains that his interest is is not in settling this matter between these two men. And in fact, he goes on to condemn coveting in general. I think one of the motivations that I have seen with socialism in general, is a certain jealousy or covetousness of what your neighbor has. In fact, you'll hear, hear a lot of people say, the rich need to pay their fair share. And, and a lot of times you find that those who position themselves as socialists, when they become rich themselves, then they really love all the tax breaks that they get. And I'm talking too loud about that now. Some of the, the biggest proponents of socialism own multiple homes spread throughout and um, are not in favor of paying their fair share, as they might say. Why is that? Well, I think because a lot of this idea, a lot of this idea of they need to pay a lot more so that this person can have more, this whole idea comes from this covetous idea, this jealousy that somebody else has more than you. And it's not even about what they did to earn or to have those things. It's about the simple fact that they do have those things. It's not that they put in many, many hours, that they went to school, they did all those things, and that they earned their position. But rather, it's the fact that they just simply have more. And so really, the, the work ethic behind that doesn't even hardly come up. And then Jesus goes on to condemn laying up grain for many years in order to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, this is not an ultimate condemnation of, of having much, but rather it's the attitude behind wanting to have much. I want to have much so that I can just eat, drink, and be merry. Now, if you look throughout the scriptures, the eat, drink, and be merry is not the attitude that God is calling for us to have. Because that's ultimately this idea of, this classical idea of retirement. You know, I want to I save up my storehouses so that I can just live luxuriously and travel and party and have a good time. And so Jesus is condemning this attitude because this attitude comes from a place of greed. So the one asking for Jesus to settle an inheritance and that dispute seems to care more about his financial inheritance than he does about what's truly important, the the spiritual things, being spiritually rich. And being spiritually rich has nothing to do with how much is in your bank account or how many properties you own. 
So your, your value to God has nothing to do with how much money you have. God can use a rich man just as much as he can use a poor man to accomplish his purposes. It all depends on the heart. Let's go to the next parable. So Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Jesus tells this parable. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who calls his servants and entrusts to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. In in other words, he put it in the storehouse to save it for later kind of thing. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten, ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast and, and cast a worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where will be, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, ultimately, this parable is meant to describe how believers should invest their spiritual gifts and talents for the work of ministry. So all the things that you're good at, the, the things that you're gifted in, you know, and, and maybe you're gifted in such a way where you do have a lot of finances and you are a liberal almsgiver and you have the ability and the, the joy in giving lots of money to certain things. But this is talking broadly about the idea of all the things that God gives you, your gifts, your talents. How are you investing those into God's kingdom? Are, are you putting those things to work or are you laying them dormant? You know, when it, when it comes to gifts and talents, we can debate about what's a gift versus what's a talent. But ultimately, if it's something that you're good at, that you have a knack for, are you applying that to the work of the Lord? Are you applying that to expanding his kingdom? You have a, a talent to sing or a talent with music. Is that something you keep hidden? You only sing in the shower? 
Well, maybe somebody who knows what they're talking about has come along and, and has said, you have a great voice, but you're too shy to sing. You're too shy to sing to the Lord. Then you are burying, ultimately, your talent in the ground. And God will say to you the same thing he said to this servant. You slothful and wicked servant. You are robbing people of that gift which God has given you to use. But when we think about finances, when we think about socioeconomics, ultimately this parable also fundamentally reveals the heart and attitude Jesus had towards economic principles. Otherwise, he would not have used this example because he's not going to use a, a false example to talk about a different reality. They're both true. The parable is true, his idea, his attitude towards that, as well as what the meaning is trying to convey. And so ultimately, when you think of socialism, socialism seeks to redistribute wealth from the pocket, pockets of the wealthy into the pockets of the poor. Now, while socialism ultimately obsesses over wealth disparity, it never seems to concern itself with work disparity. And Jesus here is focused on work disparity. It doesn't matter how much you got, five, two, one. Jesus was concerned about what did you do with it? Did, did you just store it somewhere? Did you, did you save it up? Or did you invest it? Did you put it to work? And what did he do? At the end of the day, did he say, well, the one who got five and doubled it, he needs to ultimately give half of that to the guy who had one and buried it. That would be socialism. You know, take from the guys who invested, who did the right thing, who were wise with the money, and give it to the one who was unwise with the money. Jesus did not say that. In fact, it's the opposite. He said this one who invested unwisely or foolishly Take what he's got and give it to the guys who are actually doing something good with it. So it's actually the, the opposite. It's reverse socialism. So to say that Jesus is a socialist does, is to basically say that you don't understand Jesus' attitude towards these things. And so Jesus, his economy, his idea of economy, is propped up by wise investing not robbing from wise and wealthy investors to give to foolish people who squandered it. Now, perhaps Paul had this parable of Christ in mind when he implemented the rule in Thessalonica where he said, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, you might hear that and you might think, that's so cruel. What about the people who are hungry? Why are they hungry? Because they're not working. What's a great motivator to get you to work? Food. I mean, that's a big reason why, you know, I like to come here midweek and go, you know, sit down in the, the board meetings, the executive meetings, because we have food. That's a motivator for me. Yeah, if you work, you get fed. But if you're hungry, if, if those survival instincts kick in, that is going to motivate you to either lay there and die or to get up and to do something. And so I think we've gotten really soft on people to the point where 
if we're really looking out for their good, if we really wanted people to restore their dignity by becoming workers who produce valuable things, then we need to have heavy-handed approaches. Again, heavy-handed approaches can be out of love because what is our ultimate desire? That they come out of their poverty, that they restore their dignity by applying themselves to something valuable, and that they can be self-sustained, and not only that, but that they can also give to others in need. If you really love somebody and you want that outcome, don't just give handouts all day long without any kind of expectation. If you really love somebody, apply things such as this. If you don't work, you don't eat. It's on the sign. And I guarantee you, if they want to survive, they'll start working. And that was Jesus' attitude. This is what Paul picked up from Jesus' attitude. And this is why he implemented that rule in Thessalonica. The problem with socialism and what we've seen throughout history is that it's an economic system that actually punishes hard work. It punishes those who put in the most work or those who are really skilled at something and have many talents and they apply them, they invest them, they put them to work only so that the government can come in and steal a majority of it and give it to somebody who's sitting there not doing a thing. To the person who's sitting in their grandma's basement, playing Call of Duty 24-7, brushing off their Cheetos off their chest, while you're out there saving lives, working hard, building things, creating things, they get to take what you have earned and what you have made so that they can continue their lazy lifestyle. This is not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants people to come out of those situations. And the best way to do that is to to apply these principles, not only in our immediate communities, but as broad as we possibly can. Now, some people will turn to the rich young ruler and say, well, this is a case for socialism. Um, Matthew 19, 21 through 22, Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So if you believe that looking at this verse, if you believe that this is a case for socialism, then you probably also believe that money is the root of all evil. What does the scripture say? Does the scripture say money is the root of all evil? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So money in and of itself is not the root of evil. Money is useful. Money is valuable and in the right hands. It can be invested correctly and wisely, and it can do great things to help many people. The love of money, however, just like those who, who demand an inheritance and who take their money and they, they store it away and save it away, they treasure it like they're precious and they hide it away in their caves. They hoard their stuff. That's the love of money, and that does no good for anybody, not even yourself. You think it's doing good for yourself, but it's not. You will ultimately rot like Gollum. You will sit there with your precious, and you will rot from the inside out. The love of money 
is the root of all kinds of evil. And this is the heart that Christ wants to get at. And Jesus could see into the hearts of men. And when he saw this rich young ruler, he saw that his love was for money. And even though he was coming and asking Jesus, what must I do? He hit to the heart of the matter, which was his love of money. And he said, go sell everything you got. This was not Jesus projecting this on to the church for all time. That if you were going to follow Jesus, you better sell your house right now. I mean, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying everybody everywhere for all time, sell your house or else you can't follow me. If you have the love of money and you hold on with a death grip, your possessions and the things that you have, maybe you have a love of money problem. And maybe this instruction is for you. That you need to learn to let go of these things that you think are your comforts. That you think, if I store it away, then I can eat, drink, and be merry. I'm just going to save it. All while ignoring the needs of other people. So this is not a case for implementing socialism on a national or a local level. But rather, this is a case of the heart. Or how about when Jesus, he chastises the money changers. He comes in and he starts flipping tables because people are, are selling things in the temple square of God. Well, let me point out that this is not an indictment against any kind of free markets or, or banks or money changing in general. I mean, did Jesus go out into the, the marketplace and start continue his table flipping? Where was his anger focused at? His anger was focused at the fact that they were doing this in the temple and taking advantage of people. It was a house of prayer that they were defiling because they were trying to um, take advantage of people and sell them offering things way, way overcharged. And so his anger was against that. It was not against the marketplace in general. It was a house of prayer. They were turning it into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. Lastly, Acts 4, 32 through 35 uh, says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. This is the early church. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Some people might say that this event in church history, early church history, uh, proves that we as a church should be those who advocate for socialism, that the church should ultimately be a socialist utopia. Well, I want you to consider that this was an example of a unified church who were completely and totally unified in the worship of God. Something like this could never, ever happen in a secular society. Only could ever happen, even momentarily, in a truly united righteous and biblical church fellowship. Also, I want you to take note that this was a momentous occasion. 
This was the beginning of the church. The book of Acts is a historical book telling of what God did during a period of time. And not everything that you find in the book of Acts is a standard for the church for all time, but rather this is the story of the genesis of the church. And so, yeah, you would expect for something spectacular to happen, to to show that this is what it could be. This is what the church could be. This was also the beginning of the apostolic ministry as the apostles were involved in, the, in this work. So this is not instructions for all believers for all times. This is a great ideal. This is what we can expect in heaven, that we are going to be perfectly unified and that nobody is going to go without, that we're all going to ultimately be equal in heaven. Should this be something we strive for in local community? Absolutely. Where ultimately you're not even paying attention to who has a lot and who has little. You're not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing, but rather just people are are living as Christ. And, And there's no thought about, well, who's getting more? Who's getting less? This is not fair. We're just in the spirit and we're loving each other and it's natural and we're not even thinking about it. That's the idea of the perfect church. You're not even thinking about it because it's happening and it's normal and it's natural and everybody has a desire to do it. So when we look at just these verses, and there's more we could cover, but I want to respect your time and not keep you here forever. But I think these verses are enough to demonstrate that Jesus was not a socialist. Jesus was not a capitalist. I like to consider Jesus as a communionist. He was a communionist. Why? Because Jesus is all about bringing us into communion with the Heavenly Father and with one another. It was the work of Jesus, his hard work, which he gave from his own heart, of his own free will, he gave to us. He gave us this grace so that we could have communion with him. Here we are in our lowly stage. Nobody forced Jesus to do this. He wasn't forced at gunpoint. Rather, he willfully and freely gave himself up. He walked up that hill. He hung on the cross. He could have called down a legion of angels to come and save him. He could have saved himself. He could have pulled himself off the cross, but he stayed there of his own free will and his own desire that you might be saved. And this is why I say that he was a communionist, because he wants communion with us. But he also wants us to have communion with each other. Because if we have communion with him, we will have communion with each other. I want to leave you with this prayer of Christ, John 17, 20 through 23. Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's talking about us here today, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So church, we are called to be one together. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, male or female, or even add poor or rich. Christ is the unifying factor of our faith. And if we are all genuinely seeking him, we can all be genuinely one. And there will, fundamentally, there will be no differences between us. Because if we can agree on Christ, we can live and we can work together and we can hopefully reach that ideal of the place where we are truly caring for one another without even thinking about it. It just comes natural. And so this morning as we take communion together, I want to encourage you to be mindful of this kingdom that Christ is building and he's building it through us. Is that he wants us to be a community of believers who live as Christ. Who is Christ? Christ is who he said he is. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. He is God. He is the one and only Savior of the world. All who believe in him will not be put to shame, but will have everlasting life. So I want to invite you to join in this communion, join in his program with us here this morning. I'd like to invite up the uh, elders to come and join me to help out with communion.